there's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Due to the graphic nature of this crime, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of sexual situations that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Kathleen could hear a machine beeping in the room next to hers as she waited to see a doctor. She really hoped the person she saw today wasn't the same one she saw last time or the time before that. She hated being at the hospital, but she was in so much pain. Her ribs were killing her. Every breath was a knife. Kathleen thought back to the fight with her boyfriend Farah the night before, him yelling as he came at her, scrambling back to avoid his blows. The images came back in pieces. She was probably as drunk as he was. On second thought, no one was ever as drunk as Farah was. But still, she could only remember so much. She was on the ground, eyes wide looking up at him. Had he kicked her while she was down? That would explain the pain in her ribs. He'd really hurt her this time. Kathleen thought of the threats Farah spat at her in his drunken rages. Once he had his papers, he would leave her. No one else would want her. He told her he would kill her one day. She realized that it was probably true. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a ParCast original. The legal definition of a crime of passion is a murder that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore passionate crimes. How does a marriage progress from husband and wife to killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, 
the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. For most of Kathleen Mulhall's life, all she knew was a world of abuse. Her earliest memories were ones of emotional and physical terror. The cycle continued through her adulthood, eventually drawing in her own children, until it all culminated in a brutal murder in 2005. In this episode, we'll discuss Kathleen's relationship with her partner, Farah Noor, as well as the events that led to a murder that left all of Ireland in shock. Next week, we'll discuss the investigation, court cases, and aftermath of the crime. When 16-year-old Kathleen Ward realized she was expecting in 1972, she readily accepted the proposal of her boyfriend, 20-year-old John Mulhall. She was eager to start a new life with him, free from her abusive parents. They married in Dublin, Ireland, and their first son, James, was born in December, just a few months after their nuptials. By 1988, Kathleen and John had welcomed five more to their brood. While Kathleen stayed home with the kids, John worked as a glassfitter and did odd jobs, but struggled to support his large family. Six children in a three-bedroom house and barely enough money to go around took a toll on the family. Kathleen later accused John of taking out his frustrations on her and the children by physically and emotionally abusing them. Before I continue with Kathleen's psychology, please note, I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for this show. According to Joanna Ivana Podkanska, a social worker and psychotherapist who specializes in trauma, people tend to repeat patterns that are familiar. When a child grows up in an abusive home, as Kathleen did, they see future abuse as familiar and a part of life. A 2016 crime study for England and Wales reported that 51% of adult survivors of child abuse experience domestic violence later in life. And when John turned his aggression against his children, this was just another inevitability. But in the early 1990s, after 20 years of marriage, Kathleen found out that John had cheated on her multiple times. She was devastated. She had given John six children, put up with his drinking and abuse, given him her most vibrant years, and now he was seeing other women behind her back. But Kathleen couldn't leave. She hadn't held a job since giving birth to her first child at 16, and four of her children were still minors. She couldn't even begin to imagine supporting them on her own. So she decided to stay. But staying and forgiving were two different things. John had broken their vows. In Kathleen's mind, there was no coming back from that. As the children grew older and Kathleen grew more distant from John, she started partying and drinking more, no longer content to stay at home, wanting to reclaim what she'd missed out on when she had young children at home. And in the summer of 2001, 45-year-old Kathleen met a new man. As Kathleen stood at the bar with her daughter, Linda, she noticed a handsome man looking at her across the dance floor. He had to be at least 10 years younger, but Kathleen smiled coyly at him and he waved back. 
The man was standing next to Linda's boyfriend, so Kathleen asked her daughter what she knew about the attractive stranger. Linda shrugged. She didn't really know him. He just hung around the group of 20-somethings. When Kathleen sauntered over to introduce herself, the man took her hands in his. His grip was strong. Comforting, he told her. Finally, I've been waiting for someone as beautiful as you. Kathleen was hooked. They talked all night. Farah Sawali Noor was a 35-year-old refugee from Somalia. He had escaped the civil war by fleeing to Kenya in 1991. But the refugee camp was ill-equipped and overwhelmed with mouths to feed. Farah was also targeted at the camp for being Bayuni, an ethnic minority. In December of 1996, Farah paid a man $1,600 to smuggle him from Kenya to Ireland, and he immediately sought political asylum. In the four and a half years since, he had grown to love the country and often wore his white Ireland soccer jersey to show that pride. Kathleen was taken by this man who had been through so much yet still seemed so kind. Within days, Kathleen and Farah began an affair. She was completely swept up in the new relationship and felt desired for the first time since she was a young bride. Though, a large part of their relationship centered around drinking together. By January 2002, Kathleen told John the marriage was over. She found someone who appreciated her and John needed to leave. He pushed back. He wasn't going anywhere. It was his house and he was the only one who paid the bills. Kathleen was furious. She raised six children. Did John think that was any easier than going to work? How dare he hold that over her head? If John wouldn't leave voluntarily, she knew how to make him. Though John had never been charged for domestic violence due to lack of evidence, the complaints she made about his abuse over the years had left a paper trail. She filed for an order of protection, and John was forced to move out immediately. Kathleen then moved Farah into the Mohal family home. The two children still living there, 17-year-old Marie and 13-year-old Andrew, sided with their father and moved with him, leaving Kathleen and Farah with the home to themselves. In fact, all of the children sided with John in the split, except for 19-year-old Charlotte. Charlotte figured if this is what it took for her mother to be happy, so be it. But Kathleen's relationship with Farah changed after he moved in. She knew he drank. Most of their relationship involved drinking together. But before they lived together, she hadn't seen Farah at his worst, violent and mean. She soon realized he was an alcoholic. His friend said that when he was sober, he was the kindest man in the world. The problem was, he wasn't sober very often. It began with shouting matches. Farah would get angry over some perceived slight, or jealous that Kathleen talked to another man for too long. Sometimes he didn't even need a reason to begin shouting, and Kathleen would yell right back. In the summer of 2002, Kathleen decided she wanted a fresh start with Farah. 
The neighbors had been giving her the cold shoulder since she moved this young African man in shortly after pushing her husband out. Even her own children, with the exception of Charlotte, still refused to see her. It weighed on her. The only thing tying her to Dublin was the house, which she and John owned jointly. Kathleen thought if she could convince John to sell the family home, she could use the money to start over with Farah somewhere else. So that summer, Kathleen and Farah moved to Cork, a two-hour train ride from Dublin. John, instead of putting the home up for sale, moved back into it with Marie and Andrew. Kathleen felt she had no choice but to agree. She would rather do without the money than fight with John about it. While in Cork, Farah worked temporary jobs through an employment agency while Kathleen received welfare benefits. They quickly became known among the Somalian population in Cork as partiers. When they weren't at house parties drinking, they were home drinking. And with Kathleen isolated from her own family and friends, Farah had no incentive to control his fists. Up next, the violence in Kathleen and Farah's relationship escalates. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. In the summer of 2002, 46-year-old Kathleen Mulhall had moved to Cork, Ireland with her boyfriend, 36-year-old Farah Noor. She left behind her friends and family. Without any other support nearby, she became more dependent on Farah. In return, Farah's abuse and control over her escalated. Finding any excuse, he would push, punch, and kick Kathleen, leaving visible bruises on her body. Farah sometimes worried that the neighbors would realize what was happening when her injuries were particularly noticeable. He locked her in the bedroom while he went to work, allowing her out when he was home to monitor her. Kathleen spent hours locked in the bedroom, replaying what had happened the night before. So many of the memories were blurred by alcohol. The evenings always started out fine, they would be having fun at a party or maybe just drinking at home while watching TV. Then the darker parts came back to her. Farah had started yelling at her, and she yelled back. He wouldn't tolerate a woman yelling at him for long, so he shoved her. When she kept yelling, Farah started punching. Why did she let him provoke her? In a 1983 paper published in the Journal of Social Issues, psychologists theorized that self-blame often comes from a place of powerlessness. The abuse victim feels like they cannot stop the abuse, but if they take the blame for instigating an attack, they have hope that they can stop it in the future. Though Farah attempted to prevent Kathleen from showing her bruises to anyone, there were a few times she got away long enough to seek medical attention. Showing the doctors her bruises, Kathleen wouldn't tell them what happened. 
She couldn't stand the looks of pity or the pamphlets on domestic violence, so she would lie, saying her injuries were from a mugging. In the two years she lived in Cork, she was mugged four times. But what really mattered most to Kathleen was that she loved Farah. She wanted to protect him. He was in the process of gaining his Irish citizenship so he could be with her forever. That would all be complicated if he faced criminal charges. And he loved her too. He told her so. She believed that love was what fueled his anger and his jealousy. It was his deep love for her that provoked his strong emotions. And when Farah was sober, she saw the man she believed he could be. He was kind, loving, and gentle. Lundy Bancroft, author of Why Does He Do That? and a well-known consultant on domestic abuse and child maltreatment, wrote that an abuser's mood changes often confuse their partner. When the abuser appears remorseful, the victim often believes the violence will never come back. It reinforces the idea that the abuse was provoked and can be avoided in the future if only the victim tried harder. But even with her love for Farah and the hope that one day he would be sorry enough to stop, the escalating abuse began to frighten Kathleen. How much worse could it get? There was only one person she could think of to ask. She found the phone number of one of Farah's ex-girlfriends programmed into his phone. Kathleen knew Farah had a child with her, and they were together for several years. If anyone knew about what he was capable of, it would be her. Please note, this woman's name has not been publicly released. I will refer to her as Jane. When Kathleen called Jane, she wasn't sure what she was going to say. She wanted to ask if Farah hit her and how bad it got. Did Jane ever worry Farah was going to kill her one day, too? When Jane answered the phone, Kathleen quickly explained who she was. She said that Farah was abusing her and she didn't know what to do. Jane told her simply, Leave. Immediately. It was going to get worse. Jane met Farah in 1998 when she was 16 years old. Farah told her he was 20, but he was actually in his early 30s. After dating for three months, Jane became pregnant. Farah was thrilled to have a family with Jane. He started going to dinners with Jane's parents and spending holidays with them. After their son was born in March 1999, the couple moved in together. They were happy, Jane thought. But just like Kathleen... Jane hadn't noticed how much or how often Farah drank before they lived together. Within a few months, she realized Farah was drunk pretty much every night, and his gentle affection was no longer gentle. One night, when their son was three months old, Jane went out with a female friend. When she came home, Farah flew into a rage, yelling that her friend was a lesbian and accusing her of flirting with Jane. That was the first night he beat her. After that line was crossed, Farah found the smallest excuses to push, slap, and punch Jane. The days that Jane was spared from his abuse were the days when Farah was gone out on a multi-day bender. The physical abuse gave way to sexual abuse. If Jane ever told Farah that she didn't want to have sex, he would rape her. 
He tied her up in degrading positions and took photographs of her. Farah turned the mother of his child into an object for his sadism. In their three-year relationship, Jane left three times. Twice, she took him back when he begged her. While it may be hard to understand why someone would return to an abuser, Jane's number is actually below average. According to the National Domestic Violence Hotline, a woman will leave an abusive relationship, on average, seven times before leaving for good. Farah promised Jane that he would change, but the newfound affection would only last so long before the violence returned. And each time she came back, Farah made it harder for her to leave. He locked her in the house with the baby, and he began monitoring all of her communication, text messages, emails, and phone logs. He checked them all. After two years together, when Jane was 18, the couple brought in a roommate, who I'll call Eileen, to help pay the bills. Jane was relieved, thinking a witness would put Farah on his best behavior. And it did, when he was sober enough to care. But once Farah drank enough, he lost all inhibition and abused Jane in front of Eileen. Within a few weeks, Eileen had had enough. She packed her bags and begged Jane to leave with her. Jane said no. She didn't have anywhere to go with her son. She didn't have an education, a job, or any money. It didn't matter if she left anyway. Farah would find her. And how much worse would it be for her then? But even after she moved out, Eileen continued to pressure Jane to leave. Then, in February of 2001, Eileen called Jane's parents. Jane, not wanting to admit to her parents what a huge mistake she had made, never told them about the abuse previously. She hid it from them better than she hid it from anyone else. They were shocked and hurt when they learned the truth. They had treated Farah like a son, brought him into their home and embraced him, even though they weren't thrilled when Jane became pregnant at 16. Jane's father, worried and angry, immediately drove to the apartment while Farah was at work. He helped Jane pack up the most important things into his car and took his daughter and grandson home. It was the last time she left Farah. Jane wouldn't go back no matter how much he begged, pleaded, and threatened. She had the support of her parents behind her this time. The Institute for Family Studies lists accepting support as one of the top four factors that help women leave abusive relationships. This can be difficult because most abuse is aided through isolation of the victim, cutting them off from support. Farah had blocked Jane's access from her family while she still lived with him, monitoring her communication. Had Eileen not intervened and contacted her family for her, this attempt at leaving may have failed like the others. Farah, however, didn't let go easily, calling her and screaming obscenities into the phone. He began stalking Jane. If she went to a bar... Farah would inevitably show up and yell at her from across the room. The more he realized he no longer had control over Jane, the more angry and aggressive his stalking became. Though Jane was awarded full custody of their son, Farah was granted bi-weekly Sunday visits, which gave him another way to get back at Jane. 
One Sunday, after Farah found out Jane was dating someone else, their son came home from his visit with small burns that looked like they may have been from a cigarette. Concerned Farah had injured their son on purpose, Jane decided she needed to find a way to keep her son safe without provoking Farah and without defying the court order. But before she could do anything, Farah suddenly stopped contacting her. He stopped following her. He stopped sending threatening messages. If she saw him in town, he ignored her. He even stopped visiting his son. What Jane didn't know was that Farah had met someone new, Kathleen Mohol. And now that same woman who had distracted Farah from his reign of terror on Jane was on the phone, detailing her own abuse. Jane knew that Farah was capable of worse. She pleaded with Kathleen to leave. In spite of the advice and Jane's stories of Farah's terrible abuse, Kathleen stayed. In September of 2004, after two years in Cork, the pair decided to move back to Dublin. Farah had gotten into several bar fights there and had gained a reputation. He told everyone in Dublin that they had to come back because he had run afoul of a member of the Irish Republican Army during one of these fights. In Dublin, social services set them up with temporary housing while they waited for an apartment to open up. Kathleen welcomed the chance to be closer to her friends and family. She also hoped that moving back meant the return of the old Farah. He hadn't been quite so violent when they lived in Dublin before. Sure, the old Farah was still mean, but not as bad as the side of him she saw in Cork. Unfortunately, she was wrong. Kathleen wrapped a few ice cubes in a washcloth and held the cold compress against her swelling eye. It was already getting purple. They'd only been back a month, but Farah's old temper had found them. He'd been so angry last night, it made Kathleen terrified. She felt that the day he went too far, the day he killed her, was getting closer and closer. In a panic, Kathleen got dressed and threw what she could fit into a sports bag. She had to get out now, before Farah came back. She would go to social services and tell them the truth. Farah was abusing her. She wanted to be moved immediately to a different shelter that he didn't know about. She was getting away from him before it was too late. The caseworker, who was unfortunately used to dealing with such situations, found Kathleen a place to stay that night. She even made sure that Kathleen and Farah would never be scheduled to come to the office to pick up their checks or process paperwork at the same time. As long as Kathleen wanted to stay away from Farah, they would help make that possible. But she didn't, or couldn't, stay away. As so often happens, Kathleen went back. Sarah M. Buell offers several possible reasons victims stay with their abusers and 50 obstacles to leaving. In Kathleen's case, she went from an abusive childhood to an abusive marriage to an abusive partnership. She could have believed abuse was what was expected in life and she likely lacked the self-esteem to believe she deserved better. On top of that, she had alienated the majority of her family and children by choosing to be with Farah. Admitting to them that she was abused by him and needed their help would be even more difficult. 
Just two weeks after Kathleen confided in her caseworker about the abuse, Farah and Kathleen were out together. While standing on the sidewalk, Farah began hitting her. A nearby patrol car stopped and arrested Farah on the spot. Kathleen insisted to the officers that she was fine and they should let Farah go. But they had witnessed the assault themselves and were not about to walk away. Farah was taken to the station and held, but when Kathleen completely refused to cooperate or make a statement, they released Farah without charges. A few months later, in December of 2004, Kathleen and Farah moved into a tiny two-room apartment together. They had fully reconciled by that point. Being back in Dublin gave Kathleen more time with her children, or at least the ones who would see her. Her two oldest sons, James and John, were in prison at the time and Kathleen visited them occasionally. She was still on the best terms with Charlotte, now 21, who would often stay over at the apartment drinking with her mother and Farah. Linda, now 30, had put some of the hard feelings aside and visited occasionally, but she preferred seeing her mother without Farah around, not liking how he treated her mother. Charlotte also disliked him. She knew he would get violent when he was drunk. In the middle of March of 2005, it began to look like they wouldn't have to worry about Farah for much longer. Apparently, he had told some friends to let him know if they heard about a low-cost room he could rent somewhere. He was planning to leave Kathleen. He also called his mother, who still lived in Kenya, and told her that he was afraid of Kathleen. According to Farah, she had threatened his life, and he believed her. He told his mother he needed to get a knife to protect himself from her. Then, on Friday, March 17th, 2005, Farah didn't show up for work. Next, Kathleen and Farah continue on a path that will leave one of them dead. Now back to the story. On Friday, March 17, 2005, 38-year-old Farah Noor missed work. The Dublin-based job placement agency he worked for tried to call him on his cell phone, but he didn't answer. They tried his 49-year-old girlfriend, Kathleen Mulhall, and she told them that Farah's child was ill and he had gone to help take care of him. In truth, Farah and Kathleen were on day two of a St. Patrick's Day bender. By the time Monday, March 20th rolled around, Farah had been drunk for four days straight and was showing no signs of stopping. He skipped work that day as well. The couple decided to go to Dublin City Center to walk around. Kathleen called Charlotte around 11.30 a.m. to see if she wanted to meet up. She immediately said yes. The next day was Charlotte's 22nd birthday, and she wanted to celebrate. Charlotte had been spending her Monday hanging out at her dad's house with her sister Linda. Though it was still morning, the two had been drinking vodka and Cokes at home, but going out sounded much more fun. She asked Linda to come too. At first, she said no. Linda had her kids at the house and she didn't want to just leave them. Plus, Linda knew no good could come of spending the day with Farah while he was drinking. But Charlotte insisted. Their 17-year-old brother was home and he was plenty old enough to babysit the kids. Linda tried to say no again, but Charlotte kept asking, even though she was eight years younger, 
Charlotte was the stronger personality. She could usually persuade her sister into doing what she wanted, and Linda eventually gave in. Linda and Charlotte caught the bus to the city center, arriving around 1.15 p.m. When Kathleen saw her daughters, she hugged them. They looked warily at Farah. Kathleen and Farah were both holding beers. Kathleen seemed steady, but Farah was obviously drunk. Not a good sign, seeing as they had only just arrived. Farah went to the liquor store for a bottle of vodka while Kathleen went to a corner store and bought three bottles of cola. The women dumped half of their sodas onto the pavement and refilled them with vodka. Farah drank his vodka straight. After walking around for a little while, they headed down to the boardwalk along the River Liffey to find a bench to sit and drink. Linda used her phone to play some music and sneakily pulled out a baggie with some pills in it. She took one and then slipped another to Charlotte. When she whispered something to Charlotte, Kathleen looked at them and snapped, What are you doing? Linda told her she had ecstasy tablets and Kathleen insisted that they give her one as well. She washed it down with her vodka and Coke. After a few hours of sitting on the boardwalk, listening to music and drinking, the women felt their high from the ecstasy dip. So, they all took another pill. But not Farah. He instead drained the vodka bottle. As he became more and more belligerent, he started arguing with Kathleen over something the sisters couldn't quite understand. He was switching between English and his native dialect, making him hard to follow. His English was almost unintelligible when he was drunk, but Kathleen seemed to understand him well enough to keep yelling back at him. The sisters tried to ignore them. Linda turned up the volume on her music. Eventually, it began to rain and Farah became angry that he was getting wet. He was also angry the alcohol was gone. Farah was just angry. His yelling attracted enough attention that Kathleen decided it was time to go. She grabbed him by the arm and half dragged him up the street. The pair continued to bicker as they walked. The sisters pushed ahead of them, annoyed. Charlotte had gone out for a good time leading up to her birthday, and Linda didn't even want to go out to begin with. It figured Farah would ruin the day. As they walked up the street, they passed a group of little boys playing on the sidewalk. When Farah made it to them, he singled out one of the boys who looked to be about five years old. Farah teared up, saying, That's my son. That's my son. The boy was not Farah's son. But still, Farah walked up to the boy and took him in his arms. He kept repeating, That's my son, as he drunkenly hugged the boy. The little boy started crying, frightened of the stranger who grabbed him. He began to squirm to get out of Farah's grip, but Farah was holding him too tightly. Kathleen screamed at Farah to put the boy down. The boy, fighting against Farah, managed to get both feet on the ground while Farah was distracted by Kathleen. The boy ran off, leaving Farah on the sidewalk, calling for him to come back. This incident only worsened Farah's already dark mood. From his point of view, he just wanted to spend time with his son, and Kathleen wouldn't let him. He cursed at Kathleen as they continued through the city to their apartment. She had to get him under control. 
As soon as they all made it to the apartment, Kathleen went into the kitchen. She needed another drink. But she knew that Farah would be angry if she made herself a vodka cocktail and not him one too. The last thing he needed was more liquor. She decided to pour him a beer instead, hoping he would be drunk enough to accept the compromise. Someone played music in the next room and Kathleen started dancing as she mixed the drinks. Man, these were good pills. Maybe that's what Farah needed, just a little high. Kathleen tapped Linda on the shoulder and quietly asked her for another ecstasy tablet. Then she crushed it up and stirred it into Farah's beer. This would do the trick for sure. They'd all have a good time now. Linda and Charlotte laughed as they sang along with a pop song. Charlotte sat on the little two-seater sofa and pulled her sister onto her lap. What follows is the version of events best supported by the evidence. Please note, multiple versions were presented to investigators. When Kathleen handed Farah his beer, he took it to the couch and sat down next to Charlotte, who still had Linda in her lap. Farah then quickly drained his ecstasy lace beer while the sisters chatted with each other next to him. Kathleen went to the bedroom, relieved that Farah had finally stopped yelling. Things seemed to be calming down. At some point, while Kathleen was still out of the room, Farah turned to look at Linda. Then she felt his arm around her shoulders. He pulled her close like he wanted to hug her. It made Linda uncomfortable and she tried to pull away. As she managed to get some distance between them, Farah ran his hand down to her waist and then began rubbing her back. This type of touching was not ever part of their relationship and Linda's alarm bells went off. She tried to get up off Charlotte's lap, but before she could, Farah's hand clamped around her shoulders again. He jerked her towards him until her ear was near his mouth. He whispered something she couldn't quite make out, but there was no mistaking Farah's tone. Whatever comment he made was sexual. Linda told him to get his hands off of her as she tried to get free from his grasp. Then he whispered, You look just like your mother. Linda was still trying to pry his hand off of her shoulder when he said, We are two creatures of the night. Kathleen heard Linda scream for help and Charlotte yelling. She ran into the room and saw the panic on Linda's face. She yelled for Farah to let go while her daughter struggled against his grasp. Linda eventually got enough leverage to stand up, but Farah was surprisingly quick. The ecstasy tablet, meant to improve his mood, had given him energy. Farah grabbed Linda by the waist. As Kathleen and Charlotte kept yelling at him, he began chanting, Linda, Linda. He didn't seem to notice anyone else in the room. He was completely focused on Linda. Linda and Farah struggled across the cramped living room and into the kitchen. They ended up against the sink and there was nowhere else in the apartment for Linda to go. Charlotte had followed them into the kitchen and tried to pry Farah's hands off of her sister. Charlotte was stronger than Linda. She was tougher. But Farah's arms were immovable. He kept hold of Linda and whispered again, 
you look just like your mommy. Kathleen came into the kitchen and pushed Farah as hard as she could, trying to get him off of Linda. This snapped him out of his trance, and he turned to look at Kathleen with furious rage in his eyes. While holding on to Linda, he shoved Kathleen across the kitchen. Still looking at Kathleen, he took a finger and dragged it across his throat. He was finally going to kill her. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We will be back Wednesday with part two of the Scissor Sisters story. Next week, we'll discuss the gruesome choices made immediately after the murder, the investigation, and the court cases that followed. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify or your favorite podcast directory. For more information on the Scissor Sisters, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Irish Scissor Sisters by Mick McCaffrey and The Torso in the Canal by John Mooney extremely helpful to our research. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler with sound design by Michael Langsner. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Liebeskind. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Crimes of Passion is written by Charlie Worrell. I'm Lainey Hobbs. Mm-hmm.